You're listening to City Church Long Beach Sermons. Visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Um, so today, as we uh, enter in, we're, we're in a sermon series in Advent, and we're, we're looking at the prophets, the prophets who foretold this great Messiah who's going to come. Um, and today we, we have the special privilege of having Abby Nishimoto in her inaugural sermon here at City Church. Uh, say hi to the nice people, Abby. Hello, nice people. <laughs> uh, Abby actually does not do this for a living, although you won't know uh, by how gifted she is. But uh, she actually helps the learning and development uh, team over at Southern California Gas. That's where she works full time. Uh, but she does stuff with small groups for us and uh, she's done a lot of leadership around city church so i'm super grateful to have her and and as we look at these prophecies today we're looking in isaiah one of the things that we keep running into is this idea that that many of us have never noticed before which is this idea that all the prophecies about jesus included justice and his love for justice and so we're looking at that and how hope interacts with justice and with the Messiah, all these things. Um, and the one today is sort of the class, is one of the classics um, where it's, you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. This is who our new Messiah is going to be. Um, and you'll hear that in the scriptures. It's read and taught today. But before we get to like the, like, wow, he's awesome. There's a sense in which we have to go through the darkness first. There's a sense in which um, you long for a vaccine a lot more after you know how bad the virus is, right? And that's what Isaiah is doing. He's, he's preaching to people who have lived uh, in, in crisis in darkness. Um, and then he's going to talk about the incredible hope uh, that comes on the backside. So uh, Wayne Nishioka and Jim Wilson, those fine two men are going to read scripture for us today. Uh, a few good men would uh, unmute and uh, read out of Isaiah chapter nine for us. All right. Thanks, Bill. Good morning. Isaiah chapter nine, one to seven. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephthali, but in the future, he'll honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in, in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the greatest of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from the time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. People of God, this is the word of God. Thanks, Thanks Peter, Peter, God. God. Yeah, thanks so much, Jim. Thanks, Wayne. Uh -huh. Appreciate you guys. All right. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. And thank you to my friends and family who um, abandoned your other plans to join us for a little bit today. Appreciate it. I am going to blow out this candle because it's scented and it's giving me a headache. We don't want that. So, um, I'm excited to be here today to preach with Bill through this passage, but I do have to um, say, and I guess confess that I really had never looked at Isaiah 9 through the lens of justice before. You know, it's always just been that Christmas passage, you know, people cross stitch it right onto pillowcases or things like that. And, you know, it's those names of Jesus. It gives us those warm fuzzies. Um, I think the time I remember reading it the most often was a couple years ago, our kids um, were really little and they were in a Christmas program and they had a, a big speaking part. I think Wesley's two words were wonderful counselor that he needed to say in order. And, you know, we practice and practice and practice for weeks and the, the performance finally comes and it gets to his point and, you know, they, they put their mouth like right on the microphone and muddle out wonderful counselor. And of course, we're like, ah, he's a genius. That was amazing. Best Christmas performance two word line we've ever heard. So, you know, it's a Christmas passage. But when we started talking about this through the lens of, of sticky hope and, and what does this say to us about justice? I was so excited to see how much there really was. Um, it's so relevant to what we're going through today. In addition to those descriptions of Jesus, there's so much going on. Um, and we're gonna put in the chat a couple of verses that, that immediately jumped out that showed us that there's some things here around justice. The first is verse four. It says, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. So, Yoke is kind of a weird word. It's not one that we use nowadays too much, but essentially a yoke is like that big heavy bar that animals that are plowing the ground that's on top of their shoulders so that they can be kind of pushed and prodded wherever they need to go. Obviously not a comfortable thing, a heavy thing, something that limits and oppresses. So that's the word that's being used here to say that it's gonna be shattered. So that's amazing. That's the lifting of oppression. And then right after that, um, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. When uh, Bill and I first talked about this, I said, can we just skip that verse? Cause it's kind of weird and I don't exactly know what it's talking about. Um, and I still don't, but what does seem clear is that these things that were used for violence are now being burned. So for whatever reason, violence is now in the rear view mirror. And that's good news too, right? So we're ending oppression, we're ending violence. And then at the end of this passage, it's so hope-filled. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice 
and righteousness from that time on and forever. So it's there, it's all through Isaiah 9, um, these ideas about justice. Are those verses getting in the chat? Can't see, yeah, okay, great. So what we're seeing then in this chapter is that um, there's who Jesus is, his characteristics, the promises that are in those names, but that they don't matter in a vacuum, that there's a context that's really important here the hope and the joy that we get around that light, it's because of the darkness that it shines so brightly. Um, it's the contrast between oppression and freedom. It reminds me of a post from Christina Cleveland. Uh, she is a social activist and theologian. And back in 2014, after the grand jury decided to indict uh, in Ferguson, um, Missouri after the shooting of an unarmed black teenager she she wrote this post because it was around this time it was Christmas time called Advent Darkness and I there's a portion of it that I wanted to share uh, Christina said we do the light a disservice when we underestimate the darkness Jesus entered a world plagued not only by the darkness of individual pain and sin but also by the darkness of systemic oppression Jesus's people, the Hebrews, were a subjugated people living as exiles in their own land, among other things. They were silenced, targets of police brutality and exploitively taxed. They were a people so beaten down by society that only a remnant, most notably Anna and Simeon, continued to believe that the messianic prophecies would one day come to pass. For many, the darkness of longstanding oppression had extinguished any hope for liberation. I think it's so important for us to remember the context of when Jesus came. It wasn't just these neutral years. There was 400 years of silence between the end of the Old Testament and when Jesus came. And those years were filled with oppression and darkness and, and wondering, is this Messiah coming? Is life gonna change? Is anything gonna get better? And so I think it's important um, because that backdrop of oppression is what makes the hope of Christmas shine brighter. I think it's important that we stop and pause and not gloss over the pain and the darkness that we're all feeling today. And this probably isn't, you know, maybe where you thought a, a Christmas sermon would be headed. Um, but I would ask right now that you would even think about what what are those things? What are the darkness things um, that have filled your life this week? Uh, for me, I have a good friend who is uh, fighting for her life on a ventilator, fighting COVID-19, and has three little boys at home, and that feels incredibly dark. Some of you have lost friends and family members already, or they're in a similar situation. For some of you, it's the financial darkness that you're looking into and just not knowing how those next bills are going to get paid. It might be the division that you're feeling in your families or in our nation. It could be that it's been 400 years of silence for you from hearing from God and that feels lonely and dark. There's a lot going on right now. So take a minute and sit with that for a second, the darkness that we're feeling.
So it's only after honestly looking at the darkness that we actually can see the light and that it is just so beautiful. The, the passage that uh, Wayne and Jim read started with these lines. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The whole setting of their world was darkness. It was a land of deep darkness. He's not just talking about individual struggles, although each of us individually have struggles. It's this whole big picture, just exactly what Abby's talking about. Like, oh my gosh, it's, it, there's oppression, there's violence. This is our world too. And so as we talk about hope, it, I mean, it's not, this is not simplistic. Uh, it's this invitation to see the world differently now, to, to focus on the, on the light and not just curse the darkness. And there's this invitation because the, the hope that we have is a person. And the person who is our hope is a king. And the king who is our hope is bringing a kingdom that we get to participate in. The passage goes on and reads, for, us to, for to us a child is born, a son is giving. This is the prophecy of the Messiah, of Jesus, born in a stable. And the government will be on his shoulders. Think about that for a second. What he's talking about is he's, he is the king. When the government, this is his kingdom, this is his rule, his reign in our world, our lives, and over our communities, our society. And he's going to be called all these awesome things, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And then note, though, our, so remember, our hope is in a person. And the person is a king. And the king has a kingdom. Right? So at the end, right after Prince of Peace, it says the greatness of his government, or you could translate that, the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. It's going to be awesome. Jesus is ushering in this whole new world into this land of darkness, land of oppression, land of, of selfishness, brokenness, personal sinfulness, and systemic injustice. And as our king, we are invited into this kingdom, to first to know the king and then to participate in this kingdom. That's what hope is. That's what sticks about hope.
a man who's done more for justice than just about anyone in our contemporary world. Uh, Brian Stevenson uh, is founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. Perhaps you've seen uh, either read his book, Just Mercy, or seen the movie about him. If not, few things would be more Christmassy. Honestly, few things would be more Christmassy. Put that up there with one of your Christmas movies, Just Mercy about mass incarceration and fighting the death penalty and rescuing those on death row. But he writes, hope is your superpower. Don't let anybody or anything make you hopeless. Hope is the enemy of injustice. Hope is what will get you to stand up when people tell you to sit down. It's this vision of like, oh, we have a hope. The hope is a person. The person is a king and the king has a kingdom and it's a kingdom of justice and righteousness. Therefore, I will not back down. I will stand up. I will not concede hope. And I just wanted to share, uh, Abby encouraged me to share a couple of these stories. Um, of, of what that looks like. These are people who, from our neighborhood, from our church, who they have hope. And they have this vision of this kingdom because there's this king who's inaugurated this whole new way of being in the world. And so this week, these are literally all from this week. All right, I'm just, and I could go on, but so I get a call from a neighbor and, uh, she says, hey, um, would it be okay if we gave $350 worth of gift cards to, to some of those families in our neighborhood that are, you know, that your food team is working with? She's asking me for permission to give away $350. I had another neighbor who's never been to church, but again, it doesn't matter whether you're in church or not, you can be part of this kingdom, this new way of being. She calls me on the phone. I've talked to her, I think twice in my life. She's a neighbor. She lives a few blocks up from me. She calls me and she literally asked me permission. She says, Bill, could we give $500 to, to the food team, you know, what the neighbors and church is doing in, in, in the neighborhood? Could we give $500? I had someone else call up and say, literally called me out of the blue and said, hey, um, you know, we just really love kind of what the church is doing in the neighborhood. Do you know any single moms that could use a, a place to rent for a discounted rate? Had another neighbor email me and we had the conversation this week saying, hey, uh, I've heard about some, some of the neighbors who are struggling with rent. Can we participate in that? And then along with it, I had multiple conversations this week with some of the families who are receiving food on our food team, who are delivering food on our food team. It's amazing. And now a couple of them are joining together with one of the leaders from the school and we're partnering, we're sort of some of the financial back end. And, and these neighbors who are receiving are actually the ones who are leading in giving out our Christmas gifts to some of the folks in the neighborhood. Like the light, is shining. Yes, there is real darkness, but the light is shining and you see it in real people's lives who are participating. And it's a, 
I don't even know what to say. It's just so good. So there, I'll turn it back to you, Abby. You, you say something. It's, I'll say something. I, I'm wondering, I'm thinking probably some of the folks on our call are feeling a little bit of whiplash right now. They're like, Abby was just telling me to be really sad and dark. And then Bill's over here telling me all these awesome stories. And like, what? what are you doing to me? But that's kind of what we did on purpose. We wanted that because that's the truth, right? There's the tension between living in and experiencing it and not forgetting the darkness um, while working towards the light and, and working towards building that kingdom that Bill was talking about. So we know the darkness and oppression is real. We know the light is real. How then do we move from one to the other? How do we start to take steps in that direction? Well, I think there's actually a clue in our passage today. And I, I'm gonna kind of go on a little bit of a tangent here. So I hope that you'll stick with me. But if you look in Isaiah nine, um, and for some reason my chat isn't working, so I'm not seeing what's coming up, but it says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of like clued in on that for as in the day of Midian's defeat, like, okay, so it sounds like Isaiah is saying this thing happened before and it's going to happen again. So what is that? What is that Midian's defeat? And probably the people who were hearing Isaiah originally would have known what he was talking about. If you're like me, maybe you needed a refresher. Um, so I'm here to give that to you. So what the day of Midian's defeat is talking about is the story of Gideon. Um, it's one of those stories that you might have heard as a kid. Um, it's not it's not on the level of like David and Goliath, but you know it's there. And so I'm just going to kind of tell you that story and see what we can maybe glean out of it. So the story is in Judges seven, um, but but the context is that the Israelites are under oppression by this by the Midianites. They're economically getting oppressed. They're getting their crops stolen. They're having to hide in caves. In fact, Judges 6 said, um, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they finally cried out to the Lord for help. And so God sent help in the form of a very unwilling leader named Gideon. He needed a lot of convincing by God that um, you know he could do some good here. But eventually he, he says, yes, okay, we're going to, we're going to fight back against the Midianites, against our oppressors. Um, we're going to try to take back the land. And so he asked the Israelites, you know, the armies of God's people to come together. And there was about over 30,000 of them. And God tells Gideon, hmm, you know, this is not going to work because you have so many people that if you are victorious, you're going to think that it's you instead of my strength. So this is not going to work for me. You need to send some people home. So Gideon basically said, if you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here, you can leave. And apparently a lot of people didn't want to be there because 22,000 of the warriors left and only 10,000 remained, which is a pretty small army. But God said, no, nope, still too many. So then it's one of those really quirky stories in the Bible that don't really make a ton of sense. But Gideon told the remaining 10,000 Israelite men to go drink water from a creek and the vast majority of them 9,700 of them about you know knelt down cupped their hands to drink the water and then 300 of them the bible describes them as saying they lapped up the water like dogs 
I don't have a dog. I don't know exactly what that means. It seems a little weird. And it kind of sounds to me like God was like, yeah, all those weird ones lapping up the water like a dog. That's those are the ones I want. I'll take the weird ones, please. So now we've gone from over 30,000 to just 300 warriors that are um, going to try to overtake the Midianites. And they were victorious. So in the middle of the night, Gideon had them blow trumpets and break empty jars and make a lot of noise. And the Midianites probably thought there were more of them than there actually were. God confused them. And the Israelites were able to take back their land. So they were victorious. God released his people from their oppressors. There was some of that joy and hope that we were talking about. And I think what's so interesting as I reflected on that story of Gideon is that the way they moved from oppression to hope was by trusting God and following his lead. It reminds me so much of Pastor Brenna a couple weeks ago in her sermon. She said we need to stop using that phrase, let go and let God. And instead, you know, a phrase we might want to try is trust God and do good. Meaning God is the one that's ultimately going to bring about our freedom. But we need to follow his lead. So the things he's asking us to do, we need to do them. We need to have action, take steps. Um, but like Gideon, it's probably not going to be in our plan. It's probably not going to make a whole lot of sense to us. It's probably going to be a little weird, but there is a path from that darkness into the light. So good. And that, and that's in this right here in this text about the Messiah coming, this picture of, of, of Midian and this unlikely victory. Uh, against oppression. Uh, it's, it's just built in. It's baked in. Uh, really appreciate you uh, finding that in the text and helping us see that, right? I mean, gosh, so good. Uh, it, honestly, when, when Abby was talking about this, it made me think of, uh, of a time in my life. Uh, this is almost 30 years ago. I went to this huge convention um, called the Urbana Missions Convention. Actually, we have a picture of it. Um, if you want to throw that in there, Joe. But there are 20,000 Christian college students gathering in this uh, basketball stadium and listening to Christian speakers and singing Christian songs and hearing about uh, God and the Bible and stuff like that. Uh, thanks, Joe. Uh, I was there. I was standing right about where that picture was taken. And and the speaker was talking about, you just have to let go and let God. And I honestly, and, you know, I suppose it's an okay thing to say. But literally, that was one of the moments in my life where I came closest to walking away from Christianity. Because I felt like, what, what is this guy saying? Let go and let God. It seems so oversimplified. I didn't feel like he was acknowledging the, the reality of the darkness, the, the crazy injustices in our world, the racial inequity, the poverty. And it was just this very like, oh, just go sing some happy Christmas carols and everything will be a great Christmas. But that's just not what the scripture's about. And literally that moment I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can follow this God the way that they 
talk about it. Kind of a strange place to consider giving up your faith. Um, and I know some on this call have given up their faith. Um, and for you friends, uh, I know most of you have given it up in church. And uh, I respect that. And I understand. This passage actually does give me hope because I feel like it does acknowledge the difficulty, the darkness. And yeah, they're great stories of hope, of that light breaking through. But if we can't acknowledge the injustices, those of us who've been deeply wounded and those of us who've done a lot of wounding, how can our faith really be real unless unless we go on that Midian that, that, that story that Abby just talked about about the day of Midian and and really get stripped down and say okay I, somehow I don't know how I'm going to live in this tension of both trusting God and doing good and I'm telling you on a good day I'm, I might get to one of those. And yet the Bible says, no, you actually do both of them hundred percent. Like, okay. <laughs> I mean, really that's the call. That's, that's what we're called to like, totally trust God and totally do justice. Like, I don't want to do justice. It costs money. It, it's hard work. You know, I feel insecure. I have to deal with, you know, for me in my situation, my white privilege, but many of us in other situations dealing with uh, other aspects of the justice journey, I'm like, oh, it's hard. I don't want to do that. And I don't want to trust God. Oh, it's so unnerving to actually surrender again and again. And yet there's this hope. There is this light shining in the darkness. We have seen this Messiah who is different. Who, who cares. And who's just a little baby. A child is born, a son is given. And so one of the things I think that hope is, is this unnerving resolve to, to do both, to, to trust God and to do good, like what Brenna preached about two weeks ago. There's a old theologian uh, named Jürgen Moltmann, who spent time in a concentration camp in World War II. And he wrote about it, and he wrote about how hope got him through. But it wasn't pretty. And it actually kind of encourages me. This is what he wrote. He said, hope cuts two ways. On the one hand, it provided the strength to get up again after every inward and outward defeat. And on the other hand, it made the soul rub itself raw on the barbed wire, making it impossible to settle down in captivity or come to terms with it. And I think in some ways that's my, I think that's Jesus's invitation to us today. It's certainly mine uh, to, to find that inner strength, but also will you let hope rub you raw on the barbed wire of injustice 
making it impossible for you to go through this Christmas just drinking more eggnog, eating more cookies, and pretending that our nation is not full of poverty and injustice and our world is not full of brokenness. Will you actually, um, I don't know, I hope you find it impossible to settle down in captivity here uh, with the Midianites oppressing. Instead that you'd rise up and you, unlikely leaders, you, you'd be the ones who lead the charge. Thanks, Bill. So we're, we're wrapping up here, but I'd, I'd like to just revisit that idea from the beginning about the yoke, because as we talk, as, as Bill's, you know, kind of putting out that call to us, so let's, let's be those fighters for justice, let's do that work, that can start to feel like another kind of yoke, another kind of heaviness. And if you remember, um, we looked at this verse a couple times already, but um, Isaiah 9, 4, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. So it's like, okay, well, if, if we've shattered that, that yoke of oppression, why would we take on a new one? But, but Jesus in Matthew actually said to take his yoke upon you. So in Matthew 11, um, when he was leading his followers on earth, he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So it's a different kind of yoke. That work that we do for justice, we do because it's motivated by joy and hope, not obligation or suffering or pain. You know, that verse, um, as much as I love it, it does still sound a little churchy um, with words like yoke that we don't use very often. And so something that I do sometimes when I, when I want a verse to just kind of come alive a little bit more is I'll look at it in a different uh, translation. And one of my favorites is the message, which is um, kind of a contemporary retelling of the Bible. And so Matthew 11, that same chunk of verses about the yoke. This is what they are in the message. And I would just invite you, maybe even as I read this, just close your eyes and let it um, really sink in to your soul. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I've copied that verse into my journal through tears more times than I can count when I need to know that, um, that Jesus is calling me into rest, um, calling me into a life of hope and of joy. And I know that he's inviting you into that as well. And, and the hope that we also get, the extra bonus in this chapter is that it's not just hope for us, it's for the whole world. At the end of that chapter, that Christmas chapter, he will reign over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. That's on God. He's responsible to bring 
about that hope for the entire world. We just get to do our small part and be faithful. And just on that note, I wanted to close with a personal story from yesterday. Um, I think there's a picture of the Bellflower Christmas Store, which is a pretty cool um, ministry that's been going on for a long time. Uh, the churches in Bellflower get together and they allow parents who can't afford to buy gifts for their kids to actually shop um, and buy gifts at really reduced prices. So a gift that maybe is normally $20 is donated. And so a parent can, can buy it for two or something like that. Um, and we were still able to do the store this year, even though um, all of the COVID restrictions, we got the stamp of approval from the health department. And I just was struck as I was there um, watching parents shop and watching volunteers interact with them, that it was such a picture of what we're talking about today because the darkness, the oppression was very obvious. The fact that there was three different sites of this store and at each site, a line just wrapping around the parking lot of families that can't afford you know, the basics of a, a Christmas gift for their child, that's heartbreaking. The fact that it had to be outdoors and we couldn't do the Christmas carols and the hot chocolate and we had to wear masks and stay six feet apart. It was a very ever-present reminder of this pandemic that we were in. The fact that some families couldn't show up at all because they contracted the disease or had to be quarantined. And so now they couldn't even come and get that gift for their kids. There was definite signs of the darkness and the brokenness, but there was also such light. You know, you can tell underneath someone's mask if they're smiling. And there were so many smiles from parents, you know, as they found that perfect gift. And, you know, the, the shock that they were gonna be able to get that gift for such a low price and, and the volunteers that were, you know, taking their stuff for them to the car and asking how they could pray for them and help them. It just, there was joy there. There was hope and there was joy in the midst of a really hard and dark time. So I'm gonna keep doing that. I'm gonna keep trying to look for those glimpses of hope and joy. And that's, that's what Bill and I are inviting you to do as well this week. You know, where, where can you find Jesus in the darkness this week? Where can you lay down a heavy yoke and pick up that yoke that Jesus is promising us? How can we learn those unforced rhythms of grace from the Prince of Peace? That's what we'd love for you to take away.